I'm James Batchelor and you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm joined this week by Gary D. Nissenbaum of the Nissenbaum Law Group. Uh, this is a boutique law firm based in the US. Uh, they have an emphasis on business law, uh, but that encompasses the internet, app, video games and other forms of entertainment. Um, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I really am very uh, enthusiastic about this topic and it's really uh, thrilling to be on this podcast because I know your, your listeners are... Um, focused in this particular area, so I think we can get into some of the meat of it uh, in a way we probably couldn't if this were more of a show for broad, a broader audience, so I'm looking forward to this. Mm, absolutely. We do like to kind of dive in on, uh, on on the topics we discuss. This week we're discussing um, IP and licensing IP. Now, I did an episode earlier this year about how developers can protect their IP from you know copycats, clones, and, and basically you know trademark and all the different various forms of protection. But this is um, a different take. This is about licensing their IP out or acquiring the licensing rights to other people's IP. Um, before we get cracking on that, a little bit of background on yourself, Gary. What, what do we need to know about you? Well, um, I've been an attorney for over 30 years. And in that entire time, I have really basically focused in, in business law, commercial law. Uh, the Nissenbaum Law Group uh, is uh, a firm of about uh, eight lawyers um, or so, and we're in uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and Texas. And we also practice in other states uh, consistent with the uh, local rules. Um, and the focus uh, in commercial law uh, really segued into what your listeners are interested in, which is the intellectual property issues that have arisen in the digital age. Um, we have uh, a, a practice that encompasses entertainment law, uh, also apps, websites, e-commerce, um, video game uh, development, video game distribution, and one of the things we're going to talk about tonight, which is uh, licensing of intellectual property that might be engendered by video games or apps. So this this entire digital world of intellectual property is something that we're uh, very focused in, and that's why I'm so excited uh, to be with you tonight, because it's really something I'm very passionate about. Okay, and um, before we get started, we should say that nothing discussed here is actually legal advice. These are we're talking about broad principles. Uh, they don't apply to any particular state or jurisdiction. This is just general advice. If anyone listening does need specific legal advice, we suggest you actually consult an attorney uh, or a lawyer or, or some actual legal expert. Um, so, with that in mind, caveat made. Um, First question then for you, Gary, is how do studios go about securing a license? Say they've um, they've they've developed a game, but they don't really want to risk making a new IP, or they think it will fit with a specific uh, franchise that, that, that's out there. What's the kind of the best practices, best routes to actually securing someone else's IP to apply to your own game? Well, it's very interesting uh, because the way people normally think of it is not necessarily uh, what happens in the real world. Um, Essentially, you're dealing with an option agreement. Uh, the movie studios want an option to utilize your intellectual property to create a film. Um, they, for example, might give you a set fee for that option. They may not exercise it. If they're not going to exercise that option, they may have a structure in which they're allowed to extend the agreement and have an option for a second period of time. 
and they may have to pay for that uh, in a different manner than they paid for the original option, or it might be the same amount. This is all subject to negotiation. Uh, one of the interesting things is that the uh, film studios are very, very uh, insistent most of the time on, ex on having as many rights as they can. So while we think of it as film rights, really they're going beyond that. And they are looking at the exploitation of the intellectual property in as many ways as possible. Uh, the, the dolls, the apparel, um, the television shows, the apps, and all the other things that could, that could be an outgrowth from the film. Uh, one of the key issues that uh, is subject to negotiation is does the owner of the IP – let's say somebody who developed a video game that's being turned into a, a, a film, does the owner of the IP own his own intellectual property after that option is exercised? And the answer to that is that usually these are not structured as something we might call uh, an assignment of rights and a license back. Uh, sometimes it is, not always. Um, a lot of times you simply have reserved rights where the owner of the intellectual property, the owner of the video game carves out certain rights that they, that they will own. Um, but nevertheless, the film studios will say that that's really subject to uh, their overriding rights uh, to exploit the property. Okay. So when, when we're talking about intellectual property, when it, come, when it comes to a license agreement, what is actually included with that? Um, and is there anything that if you've secured access to an intellectual property or you've licensed out your own intellectual property, is there anything that's, that's not included in the agreement? Well, you know, let's, let, let's talk about how these agreements are generally structured. What you're, one of the things that your audience really does need to know is that there is uh, a licensor that's the one who is giving up the intellectual property they own it and a licensee that's the one who is being licensed the intellectual property that they probably know but what about the fact that there are agents uh, licensing agents who may get involved and what about the fact there may be sub licensing agents who get involved see the the key to this whole thing is if your video game is popular enough, if you have enough eyeballs on that little screen, um, you may be able to entice a licensing agent to take this over and exploit the property in a, in a whole host of ways. Now, as far as what's going to be included and excluded, that's going to be subject to not only the license agreement, but also the agency agreement. It, it's sort of a three-dimensional concept because you're not just talking about the, the licensor and the licensee. Now you're talking about the agent who's involved in all of that. And so the issue that you asked about, which is what about uh, intellectual property that's being included and what about intellectual property that's being excluded resides in all those different different uh, places, not just the licensee and the licensor relationship, but also the agency relationship. Um, the fact is that you are excluding, for example, uh, licensing agreements that you that the licensor may have negotiated already. Uh, 
before they got involved in the film rights, before they started exploiting this, uh, these characters and making plush toys, before they started making uh, bobblehead dolls. Uh, there might be uh, all sorts of similar rights that have already been exploited and an income stream that is coming from those rights. That has to be excluded from the deal. Uh, cash in hand. Cash coming in has to be excluded from the deal. You these these independent agreements are the are the name of the game when it comes to doing this. So the idea is that you're including everything, except you're excluding things that may have occurred beforehand, or contractual rights that have continued into the future but were signed before the agreement that you're negotiating now with a film studio, for example, is uh, is inked before it's signed. Okay, so following the the example you've just given then of like you know plush toys and apparel and so forth, like what do you developers need to know about licensing out their own piece? Say their game does become popular and they want to start merchandising it, but obviously they don't have the capability to do it themselves. What do they need to know before they can then license that out? Yeah, license out their own IP for merchandise. You're you're saying what do they need to know before they get involved with, for example, a licensing agent? Yeah, if they if they can't do it themselves. What do they need to be aware of? When going into this sort of agreement, so they don't—it's essentially so they don't get exploited by, you know, by by licensed licensees who know the the terms of the agreement better than they do. Right. So, uh, I'll give you two answers to that. The the simple answer is um, you really need uh, counsel uh, who who is familiar with this. Um, so that so that the nuance is looked at. The, these these agreements are all um, customized. They're all different. And frankly, even though you'll be told they're not subject to negotiation, I'm here to tell you that you can still negotiate most of these agreements, uh, even though you may have une unequal bargaining power. Um, there are things that that are expected to be negotiated. And I'm going to give you an example in a larger sense of something that you really do have to be aware of and, and your listeners should be focused on, which is um, commissions. If, if you have a, a licensing agent that is um, getting a, a licensor uh, to a particular licensee and that agent is taking a commission and that's how they're being paid, you need to be aware of how much that commission is. You need to be aware of whether there's um, more than one entity that's doing the uh, agency agreement, that's doing the agency work, and therefore you have to ask a very important question, which is, are they going to share the total commission, or are the commission's going to be additive? You have to be careful that you that you understand how the uh, termination rights will work, and whether upon termination when the agreement is over, the, the agency agreement, for example, whether something that's already been substantially negotiated is, but has not yet been signed, an agreement that's still in the offing, whether that agreement then can become um, an income stream for the agent, even though the contract with that agent is terminated. So a lot of this has to do with the period of time that the agreements are in place, what happens when the agreement is over, how it can be terminated, and under what conditions, and what are these residual rights? Very important. Okay. So when it comes to making these sort of deals, I mean, the, the whole point of um, 
making a licensing arrangement whether you are licensing someone else's property or licensing your own property out is presumably to make money out of out of said property uh, either way like kind of how much money not in terms of exact figures but kind of a share um can can developers expect to make so how are they going to make money if they've licensed the property from someone else and then how would they how how would they receive money if they're licensing their property out to someone else like in the latter case is that just a kind of a one off payment someone says here i'm going to give you x amount and now i'm going to make products based on your license or is it an ongoing thing they get a share of each sale for example well when you think about it what would be f the fairer way of doing it? It's according to what kind of merchandise is being licensed. Um, there may be uh, an aspect of the of the intellectual properties being licensed, something about the video game itself, which um, is immediate. It might have some relationship to the um, current events of the day. For example, if somebody did a video game about um, uh, the presidential election of 2016, um, and it just sort of struck a chord. It, it had a lot of satire in it, and it had a lot of downloads. Well, that's great. But then after the election, that video game doesn't that that app doesn't really have much more traction. It doesn't have what we call legs. Um, whereas you might have a different type of uh, video game where you're putting out uh, one iteration after another after another. So you have the video game. 2.0 video game 3.0 and on and on and on and it is developing that that sort of following over time you have to figure out whether you're going to do better with an upfront uh, one-time payment or whether you're going to do better by um, having the payments spread out over time but that they are tied to the amount of merchandise that's sold uh, how much merchandise is sold, when it's sold, where it's sold, uh, what kind of um, profit is made on the merchandise, that sort of thing. Um, it, it, it can't be answered in a vacuum. It has to be answered based upon how much of a wasting asset this the intellectual property in this video game is. Um, the other side of that that I, I really ought to talk a little bit about is that there is a um, cost of doing business here there was a there there are expenses that must be incurred in order to exploit the intellectual property and and you have to ask the question if you're the licensor who is paying for that stuff who's paying for the travel expenses who is paying for the expense of going to a trade show um going to comic-con and setting up a booth who's paying for that um who is who is creating uh, the samples and who is reviewing the samples to see if the samples of the merchandise comport with the quality standards that the licensor wants, that the video game developer wants in, so that the, the merchandise itself is not so um, uh, cheap um, and, and uh, in, incapable of representing the video game that it actually begins to deteriorate the fan base. The fans, if the fans are getting merchandise that they don't like, um, that's falling apart on them, that doesn't look right, that they order one thing and something else comes, um, that might spill over into the fan base turning on the actual video game itself, on the actual app itself. So all of these things come into play 
And it, it, it's not just a question of revenue. It's also a question of expenses. And it's not just a question of expenses. It's also a question of quality of merchandise. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, you mentioned that the the money handled in a, in a in a licensing agreement depends on the kind of the nature of the game. So if it's a game that's iterated upon, um, so as you say, like version two point oh, three point oh, etc. I kind of brought to mind obviously um, free to play games and mobile games, um, which kind of evolve over time and are long term agreements. Um, I'm not sure if you've you've been following the the news recently, but Disney and Marvel recently terminated their contract with Gazillion Entertainment, and they terminated um, the the agreement to run Marvel Heroes, which was a, a mobile RPG, and then that means the game closes. Uh, is that is that a risk that if if developers enter a licensing agreement with someone, is the is the risk that that license can be taken away without warning, or are there warnings behind the scenes? Basically, how do they avoid suddenly having the game that they're running and the game that they're building their their studio around licensed off off another property suddenly pulled from under them? It has to do, in my opinion, with termination rights, um, because uh, when you enter into a licensing arrangement, um, you have to have robust termination provisions in two different respects. And this is the key. Number one, termination with cause. Number two, termination without cause. Obviously, um, it should be more difficult to terminate without cause, because if you have a good reason to terminate, you should be able to do it quicker and you shouldn't have any penalties or anything like that. So in your example, if if the property is no longer being exploited, uh, then what is the purpose of locking it down to a licensing arrangement that's not worth anything anymore? And so there, that the way I would suggest is that at the inception, when the, when the contract is being negotiated, one of the things you should be thinking about is if, you, if the licensee does not exploit the property for a certain period of time and or if the licensee simply decides and makes it public that they are simply not going to um, be going forward with the exploitation, can you terminate quickly? And if you do terminate, and, uh, the arrangement, as I assume any anybody would under those conditions, what are the residual rights that the licensee now has, given the fact that they they precipitated this whole problem by not exploiting it? Um, so that's that's really the answer to your question. Is is you have to be sure that the termination rights are robust. Okay. Excellent. And what other kind of rights do they need to be aware of? I'm thinking of um, approval rights. So presumably, if you get access to a, a, you know, a licensed property, you know, you've licensed the, the property of a film or a TV show or something and to make a game with it, presumably you can't just do whatever the hell you like with it. There are The, the licensor is going to want to have some sort of say in, in what your game does and doesn't do with its characters. How, how much of a right do they have? What kind of approval rights do they have when it comes to your product, what you are creating? Well, let's, let's talk about it. In, in this sense, if the property that's being licensed is robust, if it's strong in the marketplace, it has a fan following, it has a proven track record of resulting in revenue, then the um, approval rights should reside in the licensor. 
the licensor should retain the right to do two things. The first is approve any further licensing arrangements. So for example, um, if you have a licensing agent who's going out and procuring licensees who are interested in exploiting uh, the, the toys, the towels, the clothes, um, the comic books, whatever the particular merchandise is, that might be 20 different licensees. Um, each one of those contracts, in my opinion, uh, should be subject to the approval of the licensor. The licensor should retain the right to look at those contracts and say, yes, they're fine. Now, not everyone has that kind of bargaining power. That's true. And frankly, the licensor probably has a right, a duty of some type uh, when reviewing these things to have, you know, legitimate, a legitimate and reasonable um, review of these agreements. But I still think that the licensor should have that right. And the second thing is that, and this is so important, and I can't emphasize it enough, um, there's a matter of quality. Uh, the quality control should, as I see it, um, in, a, in, a, in an arrangement in which you have a strong licensor with a strong property and a proven track record in the marketplace, the, the approval of the um, art, the design, uh, other sorts of matters relating to uh, artwork, um, quality control, things like that, conceptual uh, approaches, conceptual frameworks, should reside in the licensor. This is the developer of the of the video game. They they created these characters. They created uh, this world. Um, if the bobblehead or the plush toy or the towel or the or the pajamas that the little children are going to wear um, are going to have uh, images on them that are substandard, that are do not reflect uh, the nuance, the colors, the the uh, the feel of those characters and and that that venue that if you're if you're playing the game, it's going to do so much harm to the IP. Um, so it, it, I guess my point is that one of the things that that your listeners should be striving to do is to maintain strong, robust approval rights on quality control for any merchandising. Uh, that exploits their intellectual property. It's interesting you mentioned um, children's and, and pajamas and, and products aimed at younger people. This is actually something I've been wondering uh, the last couple of days, and I'll, I'll go into why in a second. I should stress that this is uh, this is a, a, a an example of what I'm, I'm talking about. I'm not necessarily a, a specific, not a, like attack, but um, I I saw a young boy, nine or ten years old, wearing a Call of Duty hoodie. Um, over the weekend. Now, Call of Duty obviously is an 18-rated video game series, but there's a clearly a, a hoodie in the size of a nine to ten-year-old boy. There are also toys out there that are targeted and and marketed at you know, uh, you know nine to ten-year-old boys. Now, that's not specific to games, of course. I mean, way back in the 90s, you know, 18-rated films like Terminator and and stuff like that. With you know, an Alien, they had toys that were marketed at young boys, but. In, in, in today's day and age, when people are becoming increasingly conscious of what children are exposed to, whose responsibility is it that the the, the property is being used responsibly for you know for the for the correct target audience? So not marketing a gory, 
really you know inappropriate 18 rated game not saying that's what call of duty is but as an example an 18 rated game that that's wholly un you know inappropriate for children and yet the merchandise is is aimed at children who's responsible for making sure that doesn't happen or is that fully legal you know, it's it's a hard question to answer in a vacuum. There are those who would say the one who's responsible for that uh, would be the parent. Uh, yes. That if you have a, you have a nine That's or ten a year old, debate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's you know who who's buying it. And and but on the other hand, you have to have a level of of, of sympathy and empathy for the parents because uh, you're you're being pushed by your child to buy the thing that every other kid in the class has. And so, for example, uh, on Halloween, um, you know, everyone's going to be dressed up uh, as some character out of this game except your kid. I mean, that's a really tough thing for a parent to deal with. So, in essence, the question is, does the industry itself have a um, have some sort of uh, obligation there? Um, I would say that uh, from the legal perspective that there's less of a an obligation that people that people have the right to exploit their property as they see fit but that instead it's more of an obligation in the marketplace and and an obligation in terms of business ethics and things like that for for example um for some reason um we seem to have less of a problem with children um having violent imagery on their costumes, T-shirts, cats, than we do with children having sexual imagery mm. on their costumes, T-shirts, hats. And, uh, you know, there's a certain point at which um, adults are going to look at the way um, a game is uh, exploiting uh, the child market for imagery of a sexual nature and say, you know what? I'm not going to let my kid even play that game. I'm going to protest against that game. I'm going to post things online about that game. Uh, you have enough of that, and you're losing uh, your your place uh, in the merchandising marketplace. You don't. You're going to have a, a a backlash that's going to create a lot of negative publicity. Not to mention the fact that it's not, that it's also just not a good thing to do uh, to exploit children that way. So. Uh, on every level, my feeling is that, uh, you know, it comes down to the old adage, the thing that lawyers learn in law school, there's a saying that, that, that lawyers learn, which is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And so, and so while somebody might be able to sell this, these things to children, the question is, should you? Yeah. Okay. I, I absolutely agree with that personally. Um, okay, we've we've talked a lot about merchandise, um, but there's kind of a fringe area that I, th I think is interesting is um, cosplay. Obviously, fans will you know dress up and make their own costumes um, and construct their own costumes uh, in terms yeah you know, like for for comic cons and, and and things like that. And, and obviously you know you can, you can merchandise out like you know official costumes and so forth. But what are the rules? Because presumably, <laughs> presumably every single cosplayer doesn't have to pay you know a licensing fee in order to, to dress up as your characters. But uh, is, there, is there a limit to, to what they can do with it? Is there a stage where developers can say, hang on, you're now misusing our property? Let's, you know, this is a fascinating area uh, because cosplay raises the issue of um, the fans 
creating works themselves and the fans creating costumes and the fans doing things. After all, these costumes might might very well be costumes they create on their own and not costumes that they purchase uh, through a licensing arrangement uh, that has been um, verified with the licensor. So let's start with the basic concept, which is that the costume itself arguably uh, should be copyrighted. Uh, not the, the costume so much as the intellectual property the costume represents. So right then and there, you may have a technical violation of the copyright law. It's entirely possible. Um, so it, the other issue is, are, are those costumes that are being done by the fan base, um, are they competing with the identical uh, costumes that are being uh, sold? Uh, under a licensing arrangement. So I'm going to take you to law school for a moment, if you don't mind. I, I promise it'll, it'll be painless. <laughs> it'll only be 30 seconds. But these are there are two words, two concepts, that if your audience re doesn't remember anything from what we discussed tonight, if they just remember these two concepts, they'll know what question to ask when it comes to this. And that is the difference between derivative use and transformative use. That is absolutely critical. So let me let me explain the difference and, and let's talk about this. Derivative use is where you have uh, someone who's actually creating uh, new intellectual property. It could be an app, a video game, a book, a television show, a, a YouTube video um, based upon the intellectual property, based upon the video game. Usually this is a fan, but it might not be a fan. It might just be someone who is an infringer who's just exploiting it. The, the derivative use is something that you want to put it put a stop to um, if you're the if you're the owner of the intellectual property but you want to be careful because if you are policing this uh, with too much vigor you might turn off your fan base to such an extent that it might actually be, have a rebound effect on the brand and on the, ex, and the intellectual property itself. So you want to stop derivative use, but within reason. Hmm. Now, transformative use, that's a different concept. That's a legal concept, which is essentially uh, fair use, which is saying that somehow there has been a transformation of the intellectual property in, so completely that it's not really infringing. So, in other words, if you're if you're using it as a launching point, I mean, how many science fiction um, games uh, have um, rocket ships and space aliens? You know, you might theoretically say that every single one of them is infringing on the fact that there was an original game that had space aliens and space. They called it Space Invaders and that sort of thing. But really, that's not the way the, the concept works. The way it works is, no, you can have other games with aliens and spaceships and, and moons and, and, and uh, comets and all the rest of it, um, so long as it's not derivative of a particular game. That is the transformative use. That's the part that, that is different. That's the fair use. Now, is it as simple as that? No, it's not. Because although it's easy for me to just spout those two concepts, in the real world, when, when we negotiate these things, when we have clients that are involved in this, it's a melange of the two. It's a mixture of the two. And that's the problem, is that it's so hard to determine whether a 
fan who is involved in cosplay, a fan who is involved in creating fan fiction, fan games, fan this, fan that, is involved in derivative use or transformative use. And so what it comes down to is a judgment call. And a certain amount of the cosplay, a certain amount of the um, tribute games, they're great, and we allow them. Um, if it goes too far, though, it has to be put to a stop only because it deteriorates the value of the intellectual property. Hmm. That's interesting. Because like, we've, we've seen a lot of that in the, the industry over the last couple of years. Nintendo in particular is quite quick to sla- you know, like to, to shut down um, derivative games like that are quite clearly fan or at least positioned as fan products that are not making any money they are they're made freely available and they're meant to be kind of a, an homage or a tribute or a love letter to the original games and yet Nintendo does kind of cut down on them and I, I think there's there's some consumers who, who view them quite harshly for that and, and, and believe they're being a little overly strict but as you say yeah it, it's quite a grey area in terms of derivative versus transformative use that it's, it's their call whether or not they shut those down. Do you know? Do you know what it really came down to? And this is not so much a legal concept as simply the way the world evolved. Um, for a long time, uh, fan fiction, uh, fan films were um, were so rough. Um, there was they were not even close to the kind of quality that you would see in the original product, in the movie, in the television show, uh, in the actual comic book. So the, the fan-based, even the, even the costumes that the fans made were nowhere near that quality. Obviously, with the advent of uh, sophisticated digital technology, we're now at the point where someone with a, with a computer in his basement can sometimes make something that's almost indistinguishable from uh, a professionally done exploitation of the intellectual property that's put out by one of the major studios. Um, and so that, I think, is driving this, this problem because sometimes the fan work could be of, of a similar quality to the original. Mm, definitely. And, and as, as game engines and, and, and freely available game development tools become much more advanced, yeah, that's definitely, definitely an issue. All right. Um, brilliant. I, I mean, I thank you so much for your time this evening. Like, obviously, this is something we could dis- discuss at length, but um, I, I appreciate that you've, you've only got limited time, um, as have we, I'll be honest. Um, so, I mean, a broad question to finish, kind of, do you have any kind of overall advice for developers who are looking to either license their property out to other companies, whether it's for merchandise or you know, spin-offs or whatever, um, and advice for people who are looking to secure other intellectual property for use in their video games, just general advice, like kind of the, the key takeaways for those people. Well, yes. Um, what I consistently say to clients is that you can work with an attorney on the front end or the back end. And usually if you're working on with an attorney on the back end, it's a lot more difficult and more expensive, frankly. The front end is before you sign anything. Um, there is this general sense that you can just go on the internet, uh, download somebody else's licensing agreement or other sorts of contracts and just change the names, change the dates. And you pretty much have a contract because some lawyer put it together and that's just not true. Uh, the fact is that each agreement has its own nuances and basically was put together with a particular deal in mind. And that deal may not reflect your deal. 
So uh, the back end, of course, is when something goes wrong, the contract is breached, and now it has to be enforced and possibly enforced in court or in an arbitration. And that's when a lot of people bring us in. But, you know, that's also maybe the first time that they're really reading their own contract, which is not the time to be first reading the contract. So my point is that if there's one takeaway I would give you, it is do not sign anything without having an attorney review it. Um, it's just it's just a necessary thing that you have to go through because without that, you're really flying blind. Um, Obviously, there are many attorneys who practice intellectual property law, and, and there are excellent attorneys out there. Um, if somebody wants to take a look at my website, I have various materials. I have links on my internet law page, my app page that may help some of your uh, listeners if they want to take a look at it. Again, it's not legal advice, but it, we do have links to certain reference materials. Uh, my website is gdnlaw, gdnlaw. Dot com. It's the Nissenbaum Law Group. And I urge you to uh, visit our website and see if anything that we have there is helpful to you. Brilliant. Thank you. Is the website the best way to get in contact with you? Or are you on Twitter and Facebook and all the other social medias? Really, really uh, we, we communicate with clients more formally uh, through email. Um, and we don't like communicating through text or Facebook or this and that. It's too informal for the kind of things that we do. Uh, we take communications very seriously. So I'd prefer if people want to communicate with me, just go to my website. You'll see my uh, email. It's gdn at gdnlaw.com. If you forget that, just go to my website, Nissenbaum Law Group, and, and I'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Gary, thank you so much for your time. Um, a little bit of housekeeping before uh, before we leave. Gamesindustry.biz is off to MIGS soon, which is the Montreal International Game Summit. Um, so it'd be great to see other people out there. I believe it's being held at the Palais du... Right, I apologise to any Canadians listening. It's the Palais de Condré de Montréal. <coughs> Uh, which I believe is the Palace of Congress of Montreal. Um, it's being held from December the 11th to December the 13th. You can find out more at migs17.com. That's M-I-G-S-17.com. We're going to be back in another couple of weeks with a, uh, another episode. I've got a couple of things in the uh, in, in the works, hopefully uh, some interesting uh, episodes before the end of the year, including a Game of the Year show with the whole team, if we can get everyone together in the same place. Uh, until then, you can always find your news, analysis, and insight at gamesindustry.biz Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. <laughs>